Okay, so this is our Simon Don reading group um, coming back after a bit of a break. Um, so last week we we did meet, but we didn't record. Uh, we just had a sort of open discussion, um, not directly linked to the text, but uh, you know, looking into some of the other things that we were reading and um, what connection it had to Simon Don and so on. Um, and I think we're going to continue doing that um, at regular intervals. Um, we we can decide what exactly those are going to be, but um, I, I'm not sure if we want to record those or just keep them off uh, off the record, but we can decide that as well. Um, so stay tuned for that decision. Um, but uh, so the um, last couple sections that we read, um, we we looked at um, Destu de Tracy, um, who is, uh, known for his book on, on what he calls ideology. Um, although of course this has a, a different meaning than uh, the sort of contemporary meaning of ideology. Um, and it, it's um, intended to be, uh, or ideology for um, Destitut de Tracy is intended to be a kind of science of ideas or um, a, a science of the uh, generation and organization of ideas. So um, it's a, a kind of empiricist project um, that has to do with the way that uh, complex ideas are composed out of simple ideas. Um, um, and uh, there's also a sort of social um, aspect, uh, a kind of um, um, study of the formation of social organization out of uh, simples that, that are individuals. Uh, so in, in both the case of individual psychology and in the study of social organization there it's a sort of atomistic mode of explanation so you start with simple elements and you combine them together to form complex uh, wholes uh, and then we also looked at uh, Cabanis who um, has a he's a sort of um, um, materialist I guess in the sense that he uh, wants to show how psychological um, effects are brought about by physical causes uh, and he, he was a doctor by training if I remember correctly um, and uh, yeah so he, he looks at um, the relationship between the body and the mind and uh, this so this relationship is one of uh, causation or determination of the mind by the body um, and so that's uh, um, sort of his project uh, um, and um, and then we looked at, we read, or I'm pretty sure we read, uh, uh, we were just trying to remember before we started recording, um, the section on Stendhal, uh, where again, um, um, it's a sort of individualist uh, kind of um, uh, order of explanation. So it's, it's a representation of the world in which the individual is um, sort of... Uh, it sort of participates in a social whole, but the social whole is composed of individuals. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's based, yeah, so starting from the individual and um, representing the social whole as being composed of individuals. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to spend too long on the uh, summary um, because I want to try to get through what's, what we have left in a couple. I think we have probably today in one more session if we, uh, if we can get through what's left in this text. Um, so let's jump into the uh, the text uh, itself. Um, so I'll read. Well, we have one very short section and then a fairly long one on Fichte. 
So I'll read uh, about a page or so, and then we'll stop for discussion. Okay, Bisha. Bisha introduces duality into the physiological study of the individual through the distinction between the functions of organic life, like digestion and circulation, which are exerted by the non-symmetrical organs continuously, and the functions of animal life, which have their focal point in the symmetrically placed organs and are intermittent, interrupted by periods of sleep. Organic life is subtracted from the influence of habit, and it is the origin of the passions. Animal life is the origin of the understanding and the will. Fichte. A doctrine of extreme importance appears in Fichte's thought, that of recurrent causality as foundation of the being's freedom. This recurrence of causality occurs not for the singular individual, properly speaking, but for humanity, upon which it confers unity and cohesion through knowledge. The instrument, the vehicle that carries out the transfer of causality is the theory of science. While Fichte's contemporary search for a mediation capable of connecting the human individual to a transcendent reality, according to the theory of the traditionalists, or to an imminent reality that always flees before the subject's movement, as in the ideologues Stendhal and Leopardi, Fichte instead posits the necessity of a mediation. But this mediation is a mediation of the being with respect to himself. It is a causality that exerts itself between two terms that are the being. This being is humanity, and the mediation of the being with respect to itself is the theory of science. Through the theory of science, which is self-mediation or recurrent mediation, according to the vocabulary of information theory, quote, humanity as a whole will hold itself in its own hands under the dependence of its own concept. It will make of itself with absolute freedom all that it can want to make of itself, end quote. Freedom is a drive that surpasses the given, but it is not an irrational or arbitrary activity. Veritable freedom is that which finds its law within itself. It is coherence and invention at the same time, fidelity to reason and the effort to think by itself. It is self-renewal and affirmation in being. This aspect of continually surmounted contradiction, of compatibility discovered between terms that were not compatible without the act of freedom and the subject's effort to invent, this ambivalence of freedom is revealed through the always twofold and paradoxical aspect under which it presents itself and through which it reveals itself. It is progress in oneself and is also inversely and consequently education of others. Personal freedom is inseparable from the freedom of others because, quote, man is man only among men, unquote. Freedom is self-finalized. Self it cannot be assigned to any other goal than its own development in oneself and in others, or what amounts to the same thing, not of the humanity in oneself and in others. In this sense, there cannot be a preliminary determination of becoming by thought. Self-knowledge for the, the singular being cannot reach the future, quote, I cannot grasp my total and complete destiny, what I must become, what I will be, completely surpasses my thought, end quote. The contract which arises from the freedom of individuals cannot hinder this freedom in any way. It cannot be a principle of social constraint. Each individual retains the right to break it at any moment. Economic liberalism itself must be sacrificed to the freedom of the individual, according to the theory of the closed commercial state. Socialism of the state consequently seems like a desirable system. Moreover, the state must be closed to outside commerce and become an economic community that suffices unto itself within its, quote, natural boundaries, unquote. Here again, the necessity of freedom appears as an urgency of the being's autarkic but creative return to himself. The state within its natural boundaries is a veritable individual. Within it, recurrence is a limit and enclosure. Freedom is not a state but an act, a certain schematism of this dynamism of the being's recurrence. This is why freedom is first realized in a local, almost insular way, then increases incrementally by extending its domain like a chemical reaction that propagates when it has been initiated at a set point. It will therefore first be individuals of the elite or restricted communities who will realize freedom. This dynamism, which results from a high degree of organization in the relation of oneself to oneself, must therefore exist locally, but completely, and then expand through prop propagation. 
certain very restricted groups of experienced men will be the true forerunners of freedom on the basis of which the spirit of freedom will radiate outward. Freemasonry is a sanctuary in which, quote, it was necessary to shelter ideas that the public was unable to understand or that it would have misused, unquote. The scholar is the social apostle, the, quote, priest of truth, unquote. Similarly, the German nation has been, has between all peoples the mission of freedom that Fichte and his circle have be, between all men, for the German people is the one that most clearly possesses among all modern peoples the seed of human perfectibility, and quote, to whom precedence in the development of humanity is due, unquote. Freedom is therefore essentially conceived as movement and dynamism oriented toward the future, outside any participation in, tr in a tradition like that of the unity of empire or Catholic unity, which only belong to the past. Right, so... Uh, Fichte is a is a pretty interesting uh, person. Um, both his uh, biography and uh, his thought, um, and uh, Simon Don's interpretation here is also pretty interesting. So he he um, uh, describes Fichte's uh, sort of overall orientation in terms of recurrent causality. So it's a um, a kind of causality in which the cause and the effects are the same entities. Uh, so um, for Fichte, it's the I, um, um, the I uh, acts on itself, and and so the, the sort of fundamental um, principle for Fichte is this self-acting I, um, this I equals I, um, and uh, uh, the the I uh, determines itself uh, in the act. Uh, so that it's, there's this sort of uh, Fichte invents this uh, this word Tathandlung. Um, which means like a, a fact act or, or a fact that is in, uh, immediately an act or an act that is uh, immediately a fact. So um, it's not the case that we can sort of uh, observe ourselves in consciousness and then uh, determine what properties we have as a, a sort of um, as a fact. Uh, we instead um, create ourselves or determine ourselves in, in the very process of self uh, reflection or self uh, uh, observation or, or whatever term we want to use. So um, the what the I is is determined by the act of uh, uh, sort of determining what the I is. Uh, it's this sort of immediate action that is a fact and in fact that is an action. Um, and uh, yeah, and so Fichte also. Uh, so this is the sort of the the like abstract. Um, 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 kind of uh, epistemolo epistemological slash metaphysical theory that uh, Fichte develops in uh, his, what he calls the Wissenschaftslehre, the doctrine of science. Um, uh, this is this is the, the doctrine of science sort of principle, but then Fichte also has a number of um, practical writings. Uh, so one of the ones that Simon Don quotes here or refers to here is the closed commercial state, which is um, this very strange text in which Fichte argues that um, the uh, the state has an obligation to ensure that all of its citizens can earn a living from their their trade, whatever um, uh, uh, sort of uh, trade that they practice. So farmers and merchants and so on. The state has an obligation to in ensure that everyone can earn a, a living from that trade. Uh, and then, so he he um, notes that. Given the fact of a, a world market, the state doesn't have control over the economic circumstances in which its citizens live. So, um, depending on the world market, uh, one commodity might become much 
uh, higher priced or much lower priced, and and that will affect the citizen's ability to earn a living. Uh, so then, his what he argues is the the logical solution to this problem is for the state to um, to uh, close itself off to external commerce, so that uh, the the economic um, circle in which the citizens operate would be entirely under the control of one state. Uh, and then uh, in this closed commercial state, the state would be able to set the prices of all the different commodities uh, in such a way that every citizen would be able to earn a living from their trade. Uh, and, um, uh, and then he, and he sort of recognizes that this is um, uh, a kind of utopian idea that it's, and he, he even has a chapter called uh, something like why this plan will not be implemented or something like that. Uh, um, so he, he is uh, sort of realistic about the, the odds of this plan actually being brought about, but that he, Argues that this is sort of the the logical conclusion of um, uh, of you know his understanding of economic relations and how they're connected to the state. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a kind of theory in which the state um, sets all the prices of commodities in such a way that uh, every citizen is capable of earning a living. Uh, and then he also Simon Don here also alludes to. Um, uh, one of Fichte's first texts, which is the contribution to correcting the public's understanding of the French Revolution. Um, that's not the exact title, but something along those lines. Um, uh, so Fichte, uh, and Fichte published this anonymously because uh, the French Revolution was obviously very politically dangerous in Germany at the time. So he wrote this in 1793, I believe, uh, the early 1790s anyway. Um, and um, in that book, Fichte argues that um, the social contract, like any other contract, can be revoked by any party at any time. Uh, so you can unilaterally withdraw from the social contract uh, as, as an individual, um, uh, which just means that you are no longer a member of society, so you're not entitled to any of the privileges of society either. Um, but it also means that uh, a people as a whole can... Um, sort of renegotiate the social contract at any time. Uh, and so this is what Fichte takes the French Revolution to be, is a kind of renegotiation of the social contract. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so that, it's a very, a very strange um, theory of contract, uh, because of course, if any party can revoke a contract at any time, then the contract itself seems kind of pointless. Um, it, it doesn't see, it's not binding. Uh, it doesn't um, assure you that the other party is going to do anything uh, except what they you know feel is in their interest at any given time um but uh yeah so this in this book Fichte um defends the French Revolution on the grounds that uh, a people uh, uh can uh renegotiate the social contract at any time and also that um it's impossible for uh, a people uh to bind themselves to a contract uh eternally so you can't you can't, um, a contract that would um, sort of bind you beyond the, the term of, um, of when it's in your interests or desire to, fall, to uh, stay in that contract is invalid. So you can't, you can't um, sort of bind your future will um, and say, you know, this contract will be valid for 10 years, no matter what I say, uh, you know, five years from now or whatever, something like that. 
that kind of contract would be invalid. So uh, there's no sense in which um, the formation of a state at a given time can be uh, sort of binding on future generations who would have to uh, follow that social contract that, that instituted the state. Um, so yeah, it's a, a, a very um, strange account of contract that uh, leads to a defense of the French Revolution, uh, but it's also closely tied up with Fichte's uh, general understanding of human freedom uh, as being sort of the freedom as being one of the essential attributes of human beings. Yeah, and Angus was posted in the chat here about um, some of the political, um, uh, I guess, associations of philosophical currents in late 18th century Germany. Um, and yeah, so the critical philosophy, um, you know, Kant and then Fichte uh, in different ways and to different degrees were associated with the, the French Revolution. And uh, um so a lot of the younger generation were more sympathetic to the French Revolution and um, and the critical philosophy sort of, uh, um, I guess, gained popularity uh, in part because of that. Um, so uh, and, and Kant's judgment on the French Revolution is a bit different than Fichte's. He's less sort of enthusiastic, um, but he he, I think, does uh, um, sort of grant the uh, in principle legitimacy of overthrowing a, a government if it doesn't um, uh, um, sort of uh, align with the um, potential for uh, developing human freedom. Um, but uh, yeah, he's less, he's less enthusiastic than Fichte in 1793 um, than uh, uh, who is um, sort of wholeheartedly in favor of the French Revolution. Um, but, uh, and then also, uh, yeah, so Simon Dong also mentions later on uh, in, in that passage that we just looked at um, how Fichte uh, later in the early 19th century, and I think it was 1802, 1804, somewhere around there, he, um, he uh, delivers um, what was published later as the Addresses to the German Nation. Uh, and so he, he is uh, sort of one of the... Uh, founders or uh, precursors of German nationalism in the sense, so the, the French revolutionary army uh, or uh, the army under Napoleon at that point um, had uh, invaded uh, some of the German territory. Um, and remember Germany in the uh, late 18th, to early 19th century was divided into dozens of different states that had, you know, various uh, independent rulers um, so there was no German state at that time, but Fichte addresses the German nation and he appeals to German nationalism as a, um, a principle to motivate people for the defense of German territory against the Napoleon's invasion. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's um, been, I think this, the addresses to the German nation are probably the, the Fichte text that has received the most scholarly um, investigation because, uh, of course, German nationalism has uh, uh, a lot of history, a lot of uh, baggage in the intervening uh, uh, two centuries. Um, and uh, so people have, you know, sort of debated to what extent Fichte is, can be sort of attributed some of the um, negative sides of German nationalism that appear later on. Uh, and, and, you know, to what extent you can already find that in Fichte. Um, 
yeah, so that's that's uh, sort of a topic of debate uh, among uh, scholars of German nationalism. Yeah, I haven't started reading Fichte yet, um, but this past or this section on Fichte is really interesting in light of some of the stuff I have been reading. Like the, um, it seems like the idea that the critical philosophy needed to be founded on a, a first principle um, originated with Reinhold, um, and this seems like an idea that Fichte. Fichte picked up uh, and, you know, as you noted, seems to ground this on the idea of the eye, the eye's determination of itself. And then the idea of the fact, the fact act, the act or the act that is a fact at the same time. Kant says similar things about the categorical imperative in the second critique. Um, In one of the introductions that I read there, the translator argued that Kant was using fact in the Latin sense of factum, which I guess also means action. So there can't be really a deduction of the of the categorical imperative because it's kind of given as a given as a fact by practical reason itself. Yeah, the uh, the etymology of the word fact is actually pretty interesting um, because it uh, and this is something that um, you know uh, some scholars in science studies have have talked about um, Latour in particular. Um, but uh, the word fact, um, so the, the Latin origin is factum, so something means something made. Um, so uh, a fact is something, is something that, is, that is made. Um, but then, of course, our um, uh, sort of understanding of the word fact is something precisely that is not made. So like if you're in a laboratory setting, for example, um, you, if, you, if, you, um, can, if you say that you've discovered a fact, you're, you're saying that you've discovered something that is not actually made by your laboratory. It's something that exists independently of your laboratory. Um, whereas uh, in, in uh, a lab setting, people talk about um, artifacts as, you know, something that, um, you know, uh, like a, a sort of anomalous data point or a substance that is not uh, something uh, that is factual or real. Um, uh, so the the things that are actually that that we take to be made in the laboratory are um, are precisely the ones that we don't consider to be facts. Um, so yeah, this this uh, etymology of fact is a is an interesting and um, uh, phenomenon in the way that uh, there's a sort of inversion of between the idea of something that we make and the something that exists independently of us. Um, but yeah, and uh, it's interesting also that you bring up the, the second critique in Kant um, because um, one of the sort of key principles that Fichte introduces or, or develops is uh, pr- precisely the primacy of practical reason over theoretical reason. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, the, the second critique, of course, is the critique of practical reason. Um, and uh, so Fichte argues that our... Um, uh, our theoretical reason, our, our capacity to um, grasp uh, necessity in our in our understanding of the empirical world, for example, um, uh, depends on our practical reason. So it's only because we are beings that are capable of action uh, in accordance with a reason or with with reason as such. Um, it's only because we're practical beings with agency and freedom that we can actually. Um, have knowledge of the world as opposed to just associations of uh, empirical um, uh, phenomena. Um, 
and uh, yeah, so the it, it's in that sense that um, practical reason is primary over theoretical reason. Yeah, and this idea that the freedom is that which finds its law within itself also, obviously. I mean, maybe it's trivial to point out that a lot of these ideas are Kantian, given that Fichte was, or saw himself as, you know, the kind of direct inheritor of critical philosophy. But that idea of freedom being free because of its subjection to its own law is obviously also straight from the second critique. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so Fichte's relationship to Kant is also an interesting topic because he, um, so in, I think it was 1792, 93, he publishes, Fichte publishes anonymously uh, a book called The Critique of All Revelation, um, and he publishes it in Königsberg because he's visiting Kant at the time. And uh, so this anonymous book uh, with critique in the title, um, published in Königsberg, um, uh, people immediately assume it, it, it's by Kant, and then um, uh, you know shortly after Kant says, "No, it's not me. It's actually you know, Fichte who wrote this book." Uh, and and so this is sort of how Fichte becomes famous, um, where this book is um, sort of mistakenly attributed to Kant, uh, and then when people realize it was him, then then he he becomes famous and uh, earns a uh, his um, university a, a appointment at Jena. Um, um, and so for the early, in the, the, uh, early 1790s, Fichte presents himself as being, uh, just a sort of, um, uh, ex extension of Kant, um, that he says, I, I'm just presenting the Kantian system, um, sort of in a more systematic form and, uh, um, you know, clearing up some misunderstandings that other people have had about Kant, uh, and so on. Uh, and, um, you know, a lot of people uh, at the time disputed that point, and then eventually Kant himself, uh, in the late 1790s, writes a public letter that uh, sort of denies any connection to the Wissenschaftslehre, to, to Fichte's doctrine, um, and, uh, um, you know, says that this does not represent my thought. Um, and, uh, and then Fichte, so Fichte sort of revises his understanding of his relationship to Kant and says that he he's more or less saying what Kant should have said um, instead of, uh, you know, what Kant himself actually, um, actually did say. Um, so he, he doesn't, um, he no longer uh, claims to be presenting, you know, the Kantian system itself, but um, sort of saying what Kant should have said instead of what he actually did say. Uh, and so, yeah, there's um, an interesting kind of uh, development of Fichte's self-presentation as a, as a Kantian um, uh, and so, yeah, of course, all of his ideas can be traced back to Kant in, in different ways, but, uh, it's sort of the organization of those ideas and the development of those ideas is, is, a uh, is done in a very different way than in Kant. Okay. So let's go on to the next section. Uh, we're on page 642. Uh, so someone else could read from, but this freedom. Uh, yeah, I can read. But this freedom of the individual or of the community requires that action can penetrate into nature, which must be transparent and knowable by man and penetrable in its intimacy. Quote, it expresses nothing but rapport and relations of myself to myself. And just as certainly as I can hope to know myself, I can certainly promise to scrutinize it. Unquote. Kantian idealism becomes a means of bestowing the determinism prescribed by the understanding with freedom, as in the critique of practical reason. 
The determinism of nature is nothing but the projection of the conditions under which the human mind knows objects. Moreover, for Fichte, nature is object of the self because it is the condition posited by freedom for its own exercise and, and its progress. The existence and characteristics of nature are deduced from the requirement to act and to accomplish one's duty. Nature is like a milieu that the activity of the subject determines. The problem of the production of nature is identical to that of the conditions of morality. The foundation of the principle of identity is the action of the self that posits itself for itself, and that is because it posits itself. Spontaneity and action of the self are beyond consciousness because they are its condition. The action of the self positing itself is an initial and immediate given of intellectual intuition. The being posited by the self and the action that posits it coincide in the intuition of the self. However, the construction of consciousness that begins with the self as principle is definitely not, according to Fichte, a nosogony that would, be, that would claim to describe the effective genesis of consciousness, but a construction analogous to that of the mathematician, who through the combination of ideal elements arrives at truths concerning reality. Quote, the determinations of real consciousness to which the philosopher is forced to apply the laws of consciousness that he has freely constructed in the manner in which the geometer applies the laws of the ideal triangle to the real triangle are for him as though they were the result of a primitive construction. To take this everything happens as if, for an everything happens in this way, to take this fiction for the narrative of a real event which would take place in a certain era is a blatant falsehood, unquote. The dynamism of the self is expressed through tendency, but tendency requires a limit so that the self can maintain the the constitutive tension of effort. To exist as such, aspiration must be limited. It encounters in front of it an existing matter, an immutable reality that limits it. Unable to transform things, the self strives to transform representation. Should I keep reading? Maybe read this next paragraph? Yeah, let's, let's read the next uh, half-page paragraph, or however long it is. Okay. In order for a tendency to be able to be thought completely, it must not fixate on a particular object, since it would be satisfied by this object. Aspiration would cease, and with it all consciousness would be annihilated. Tendency, excluding any particular object, must only will itself, and must be satisfied only by itself. Action only satisfies tendency when its object is such that it does not limit tendency. The non-self is posited only as a condition for the existence of moral effort. Quote, the self determines the non-self, unquote. The field of moral action, the distance between the self that posits itself is limited by a non-self, and the self that posits itself absolutely is infinite. There exists a causality of the self on the non-self. This is the objective activity of the self. Nevertheless, since the self is posited by an infinite activity, the infinite activity and the objective activity can only reconcile if the infinite self knows itself as infinite in effort which encounters a resistance equal to itself and which only affirms itself on condition of reproducing itself incessantly. Tendency is this perpetual reproduction of effort in which the limit gives a feeling of force, since tendency is only felt because one aspires to surpass it. Tendency, which can only affirm itself through the limit, pushes the ideal activity of the self to produce the object, the condition of this limit. Nevertheless, if such is the role of of the non-self already posited, it cannot be said that its position is homogeneous with respect to, this, to its role. The act of opposing the non-self to the self is the object of an initial intellectual intuition, 
does not seem to be an expression of tendency in the same way that the self conditions the principle of identity, Fichte links the non-self to the principle of contradiction and presents it as a condition of this principle's validity. The self is at once that which posits the opposites and one of the two opposites. At once a reality as a whole and a portion of reality. We must free ourselves from this logical incompatibility without sacrificing one of the two terms, which is what happens with Spinoza and Berkeley. Spinoza and Berkeley. In addition to the logical rapport, the opposition of self to the non-self designates a dynamic rapport of the struggle between tendencies that confront one another and seek to suppress one another. The object is that which resists the mind, basically, and is imposed upon it. The self is the absolute that limits itself in order to have occasions of struggle and ultimately of triumph. Yeah, it's interesting to me that the self positing itself and then apparently the self also posits the non-self in order to have uh, means of improving itself. But he describes these as acts of intellectual intuition, which is not possible for Kant um, is all intuition is sensible for human beings, for Kant. Intellectual intuition, I think, is like the intuition of God. Yeah, the, the use of the term intellectual intuition is, is a kind of a, a strange point in, in Fichte because, so he, what Fichte says is that um, Kant uses the term intellectual intuition for something that does not exist. Um, so that means that I, uh, Fichte, am free to... Um, use the term intellectual intuition for something that does exist. Um, and so the Fichte's intellectual intuition uh, corresponds to Kant's notion of the transcendental unity of apperception. Um, and, and this is a, a, one of the most obscure points in Kant, but um, he, there's a, a footnote in, uh, in the first critique where he talks about how um, within the transcendental unity of apperception, there's a, a kind of identity and difference between the I that thinks and the I that is thought. Um, so um, the, the transcendental unity of our perception is the, is, has to do with the I think that accompanies all my representations. Um, um, but it's a, it's a synthetic unity in the sense that it's not, uh, the I think is not composed of um, representations that uh, pre-exist or, or that are assembled um, Sort of afterwards into something like an I. So it, it, it's a, a unity. Um, the I think must be able to accompany all my representations means that um, the this capacity to to think uh, or the capacity of the I to represent itself is prior to any of the representations that it actually has, uh, because nothing could be a representation without um, being connected in some way to this capacity to represented as a representation. Um, so that's that's the, the Kantian notion of the synthetic unity of our perception. And so Fichte takes this notion, takes the, the notion of the synthetic unity of our perception as the sort of central principle uh, around which to reconstruct the Kantian system. Uh, and then he makes the probably unfortunate choice of describing this as an intellectual intuition. Um, and um, it, there's also some ambiguity in Fichte as to how exactly we're supposed to understand this intellectual intuition um, because on the one hand we have passages where he um, so for example in the um, Wissenschaftslehrer Nova Methodo um, which is a 
his lecture courses from 1797, 98, I believe. Um, he uh, he starts off the course by he he tells his listeners um, think of the wall, uh, you know, one of these walls in the room, uh, and now think of um, whatever was thinking of the wall. Uh, so think yourself, uh, and then attend to what you're doing when you think of yourself. Um, so uh, this sort of uh, thought experiment or, or uh, instruction or exercise of thought um, presents this uh, intellectual intuition as something that actually does appear in consciousness. So we, we can um, sort of perform this action and observe ourselves acting uh, as uh, you know, phenomena that we can that appear within consciousness. But then we have other texts like the one that uh, Simon Don quotes here where Fichte described the intellectual intuition as a kind of um, uh, reconstruction on the part of the philosopher who, who sort of um, posits that there is this intellectual intuition and deduces what consequences it would have and uses that as a way of explaining what um, appears in consciousness. But, uh, but uh, according to this second um, conception, uh, intellectual intuition would not itself be something that, that that appears in consciousness that we can sort of observe in action within ourselves. Um, so yeah, there's ambiguity in Fichte as to whether this intellectual intuition is something that we can actually observe in our own consciousness or not. Um, but uh, um, whichever sort of method of uh, presentation um, that that we uh, that we take Fichte to be adopting. Um, the general sort of strategy of, uh, and it varies between the, the different presentations of the Wissenschaftslehre, but the, the sort of general strategy is to start from this principle of self-determination. So the I determines itself, um, or uh, starting from this self-positing, self-determining I, uh, and then deducing um, the uh, content of that self-positing in terms of uh, restrictions on that freedom of the eye. So the, the eye um, uh, posits itself um, as having some determination. And then what are the consequences? So what, what is it that the eye has to do in order to posit itself as having a determination? Um, and so this, you know, through a series of, of deductive steps, Fichte argues that um, the eye has to posit something as being outside itself. So in order to posit itself, um, it has to posit something as being not itself. So the I has to posit a not I to which it is opposed. Um, and uh, so this not I is the, the world uh, distinct from, from ourselves. Uh, so our, we can only um, posit ourselves as, uh, as an I, as a free being, um, insofar as we at the same time posit a world that is distinct from ourselves. Uh, and... Uh, we can also um, uh, deduce some of the general uh, principles of what that world must be like uh, if it's going to be the, the world that corresponds or that is associated with an eye. Uh, and he even, in the uh, Foundations of Natural Right uh, from 1797, he, he even um, argues, for example, that um, uh, the structure of the human body is uh, a product of um, uh, this determination of the eye, uh, of the freedom of the eye in positing something 
distinct from itself. So the I has to posit itself as articulated, um, uh, as you know, having the capacity to perform a variety of actions in the world, um, and uh, you know, other things sort of follow from that as well. Uh, so yeah, there's this um, relationship of identity and difference between the um, absolutely self-positing I, so the I that just is absolutely identical to itself on the one hand, uh, and then the limited I, so the I that posits itself um, as opposed to a world outside itself um, on the other hand. So there, these two sort of uh, aspects of the I are uh, identical and different at the same time. And, and this identity and difference is um, what we have to grasp uh, to be able to uh, perform the the task of the Wissenschaftslehrer and to um, to uh, understand ourselves as free beings. The two aspects of the I sound kind of sound like the the individual. Well, I guess the individual considered in itself and the individual considered in relation to the milieu in Volume One. I can't remember if he goes if he talks about that later in this section. Um, yeah, so he does. Uh, so in in the part that we just looked at, he, he uses the term milieu for the the not I for what the yeah, I right. is being independent of itself. Um, and uh, yeah, so that so milieu is not a word that Fichte uses or or any German equivalent. Um, he he just he talks about the uh, relationship between the I and the not I, um, uh, and he doesn't use uh, milieu or environment or umwelt or anything like that. Um, and um, yeah, so th that already just by by virtue of using the word media, Simon Dong is sort of um, uh, assimilating Fichte to his own uh, theoretical system. Uh, and and uh, yeah, so there's um, I'm not sure what uh, sort of the historical um, uh, you know process was. Like, did Simon Dong actually? Uh, was he already thinking of Fichte when he starts using the term milieu and uh, depicting the relationship between the individual and the milieu as this kind of uh, uh, dynamic um, interaction? Um, or is he, you know, are, does he already have the concept of, of the individual and the milieu uh, in mind? And when he starts looking at Fichte in this histor historical text and, uh, and then sort of assimilates Fichte to his own ideas, I'm not sure which one is what happened, but uh, um, yeah, it, it is an interesting connection. Yeah, that is interesting. Oh, I also wanted to mention one of the texts that Simon Dong quotes here, um, and uh, the, the reference is, is put in one of the end notes here, but one of Fichte's texts that, that Simon Dong quotes has the incredible title, um, the, A Crystal Clear Report, An Attempt to Force the Public to Understand, um, which I love that title. Um, he, uh, Fichte always complained that people misunderstood him, um, and uh, um, yeah, so he, he, in that text, he, he claims to be writing so clearly that uh, no one could misunderstand him. Okay, so let's go on to the next uh, page or so. I think we can get to the end of the Fichte section, uh, if someone else would like to read up to, up to there. Oh, I can do it, I can do it, but uh, sorry, I was late and then I got lost. So exactly which part, the individual is not an end in itself, that, is that? Yes, exactly, that's where we are. Oh, okay. The individual is not an end in itself. The individual is neither an initially given nor an isolated given. There are individuals because of reason and self-consciousness 
can only realize themselves through individuality, which is therefore the means for a universal end, and each individual can only awaken to reason under the action of other individuals, since individuals only exist in society. To attain its end, the development of consciousness within each individual society acquires as its condition a limitation of the freedom of everyone, which is the very principle of right. The theory of right becomes a, ju a juridic juridical transpersonalism, transpersonalism, uh, uh, i.e., a theory of a social right, social Gesellschaft, uh, a non organized national community is superior to the state. Which is merely a, a momentary expression. The exigency of right that the state must realize comes from the community, this transpersonal uh, reality. Community is a transpersonal reality, it is not what is opposed to the individual, but like a common ground homogeneous, uh, homogeneous to individuals, non individualized, trans individual. Community defines a real transductive relation between individuals. It is complementary with respect to the individuals and is on the same order of reality. Conversely, the state, which has nobody, no body, which is a form and an organization, is not of the same nature as an individual. It is not homogeneous with respect to them. This is why juridical individualism is not destroyed by the theory of Gesellschaft. Each individual must have a sphere of action in which he sub, 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 subsists, noble which he is fully master. This means of action is a bodily organism which is an instrument of freedom. The function of the state, the supra-individual power, is to enforce right. It is created by a pact which determines everyone's property and the means to protect them. In this way, the individual becomes citizen. The so society is a veritable organism, a uh, course in which part incessantly maintains the whole, and by conserving it, one conserves oneself. End of quotes. Because of its unity, reason requires a state of a community of consciousness which right does not realize, but the latter leads to a state of dispersion and reciprocal opposition of individuals. The realization of humanity guided by the morality is not, not just the perfecting of an isolated and transitory individual. Humanity is mankind as a whole, and it is the moral advancement of the whole. Universal progress that must be willed by all. The duty of education goes hand in hand for the individual with the duty to perfect oneself. The concern with the individual's perfection must not be disconnected from the perfecting the community of reasonable beings. Since moral duty always tends towards the universal, not towards the, uh, that which is individual. This is why the mission of the scholar is so important. The goal of this mission is the development of reason and freedom. The greatest difficulty of this system is the necessity of determining the rapport between the self and the absolute. In a certain sense, the self must be superior to the absolute. In another sense, the absolute would have to be the interior to the uh, to the self. Here, philosophy bears witness to the eternal production of the world, world by the absolute to the extent, and this world uh, reflects into individual consciousness, one of which is oneself, and in which the free aspiration of 
one's consciousness toward spiritual life is posited as a moral duty. The incarnation of the world is the progressive development of the of morality and reason in the world. Right. So this bit has to do with um, some of Fichte's later texts, which um, um, yeah, which have to do with um, the uh, sort of voc- well, one of them is uh, the vocation of the scholar. Uh, there's another one called the vocation of man. Um, so Fichte argues that um, there is a kind of uh, um, spiritual vocation of human beings to realize freedom more and more, uh, an internal progress towards the realization of freedom. Um, and um, he thinks that the scholar has a particular role to play in um, sort of leading this uh, development towards freedom. And he thinks also that the state is meant to institute um, uh, relationships of right between individuals. Um, so it, it's sort of regulating the relationships between individuals in accordance with reason. Um, but um, there's a, um, a theory of the community as being prior to the state or more fundamental than the state. So the state is, has a, a sort of instrumental purpose in making possible the relationships of individuals to each other, but the community uh, uh, exists uh, beyond this merely instrumental existence of the state. It has a, a sort of um, trans-individual reality um, in Simondon's sense. He, he even used that term here. Um, so it's, it's something that um, is both interior to the individual and surpasses the individual. Uh, so every individual can sort of find this uh, communal being within themselves, but it's it's also something that is uh, greater than that individual. And uh, so there's a kind of um, um, tension, I guess, in Fichte between this notion of individual freedom, uh, so freedom of consciousness and freedom of the I as being the fundamental principle of his whole philosophical system, uh, and then also this doctrine of community. Um, and so this is, again, the, the sort of tension between the the I as absolute, so the I as self-positing, and then the I as limited, the I as uh, posited in opposition to the world. Um, so this identity and difference between these two aspects of the I is, um, is sort of realized in uh, uh, social slash political terms in, in terms of this, um, uh, the, the fact of multiple consciousnesses uh, appearing in the world. So I, I find myself in a world in which there is not just my own consciousness, but other beings uh, to which I attribute consciousness. And I have to live together with these beings in a, in a rational way and in such a way as to uh, promote both my freedom and their freedom. Uh, so each, each of these beings um, is a sort of instance of, of the I, um, uh, and then at the same time is also limited by the other uh, being's freedom. So there's a, a, a kind of tension uh, between those two aspects of the I in terms of social existence as well. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next section. Um, actually, I think we might be able to finish the whole text um, today, depending on how, how uh, quickly we get through the, the, the shelling section. Um, so... Uh, would someone else like to read the first page or so of the Schelling section? Uh, yeah, I can read the first page. <clears throat> Schelling. For Schelling, the living being consists of a pair of opposites and of a power superior to this pair of opposites. 
playing the forces of these opposites against one another so as to maintain life by inflecting them and playing them like instruments. Nature is the infinite activity that affirms itself by positing its opposite, just as in the Kantian dynamic, expansive force is opposed to the repulsive force. And nature is infinite because it endlessly reestablishes the oppositions it has destroyed. The dynamic opposites constitutive of nature are therefore opposed to the self and the non-self. From these opposites, an internal dialectic arises, which proceeding through syntheses and new oppositions will construct every natural phenomenon. It is within nature that individualization appears through an attractive force, a veritable limit, which in the homogeneous fluid infinitely expanded by the universal activity of nature produces cohesion in its various degrees. The individual organism is activity and cohesion at the same time. It is something penetrated by activity. But the condition of the organism's activity is the non-organism. The organism is developed by the inorganic and excitability. And the inorganic is determined by the organism. The inorganic, the non-individualized, is simple juxtaposition, simple mass. But active mass in which rapport, oppositions, and connections are established, such as the mode of gravity, an attraction comparable to that of contrary electricities due to the reciprocal opposition of masses. In gravity, these opposites tend to penetrate one another, but the tendency stops at juxtaposition. This penetration occurs in chemical combination, whereas electricity, due to its polarity, reaffirms the dualism of opposites. In the individual as well, the internal activity of the organism is revealed through oppositions and connections. It oscillates between sensibility and irritability. In sensibility, the organic subject limits its activity by its passivity. In irritability, there is a return of the heterogeneous to the homogeneous, with subjective activity tending to lose itself in the object. Nature is also living action and not dead product, contrary to what Fichte's theory asserts. Nature is autonomous activity and self-constructive, not heterotomous existence. Schelling consequently supposes that there exists an intuition of nature, while Fichte supposed every intuition to be linked to self-reflection. Schelling's system of transcendental idealism adds to the deduction of the representative faculties that of the constitutive forces of matter. The forces that slumber in nature are of the same kind as representative forces. Quote, matter is nothing but spirit in the equilibrium of its activities. Um, the emphasis on excitability here, I guess, is, is interesting in light of some of the stuff I was reading about uh, Herder, for whom, I guess, the notion of excitability indicates a kind of, a kind of continuity between the inorganic and the organic. And, um, but I, I thought that he associated it with uh, like the passivity of sensation um, in a way that, I don't know, maybe he thought excitability could explain the passive side of cognition in the way that sensibility does for Kant. Yeah, the concept of excitability is an interesting one. Um, because it, uh, Schelling sort of um, adopts this concept from um, medicine, actually, um, is one of his key sources. Um, there is a, a, a doctor, an, a, a Scottish doctor named John Brown, um, who um, develops this conception of um, disease as uh, having to do with the proportion of different forces within the living being. Uh, and, and so excitability is sort of the, the um, general uh, principle uh, or the general um, term for these different forces. 
and it's broken up into um, uh, sensibility and irritability. Uh, and so, and, and sensibility and irritability have a reciprocal relations. So the more sensibility, the less irritability and vice versa. Um, and uh, so Schelling takes it that um, this relationship between sensibility and irritability is reflected not only in the human body, but also in organic nature as a whole. Um, so uh, different types of living beings are um, determined by the ratio of sensibility and irritability to each other. Uh, and, and so there's a, a sort of uh, quantitative um, um, presentation of the, the different types of organic beings. Uh, and then there's also um, this notion of excitability. Uh, yes, you're right that Herda is one of the um, sources for, for Schelling. So um, Schelling's first text on philosophy of nature is the ideas toward a philosophy of nature. And the title itself of that book is uh, sort of copied from Herda's um, ideas toward a philosophy of man. Um, uh, and um, there's also uh, Herda's uh, Spinoza book, um, I forget the exact title, but he has a book on Spinoza um, where where he argues that um, the the sort of key weakness in Spinoza's system or the key point that needs to be changed in Spinoza's system is the is that uh, Spinoza has a mechanistic physics. So Spinoza's physics is um, uh, built around the the interaction of uh, pieces of matter with each other in terms of uh, impact. Whereas uh, Herda takes it that um, that we need to have a dynamic physics, um, and and so and then Schelling later on um, um, in in seventeen ninety nine eighteen hundred he um, presents his system as being a Spinozism of physics, and he he takes it that um, uh, the the sort of key point of transformation of Spinoza's system is to is precisely to uh, introduce a dynamical conception of physics as opposed to the me mechanistic one. Um, and, uh, and so this dynamical conception of physics uh, goes back to Kant as well. So Kant uh, in his, uh, so in his text on negative magnitudes, he um, presents this uh, um, sort of construction of uh, opposed directions in space. So in order to be able to, so the, the problem that he sets out from, or one of the sort of key problems that he sets out in this uh, in this text on negative magnitudes, is the fact that um, we can have uh, um, uh, congruent objects that are nevertheless non-superposable. So a, a left hand and a right hand are mirror images of each other, but there's no uh, movement through space that would turn a, a that would allow a left hand to be superposed on a right hand. Uh, no matter how you sort of turn and flip and rotate them, you never uh, the the left hand and the right hand will never coincide, but they're mirror images of each other. Um, and so Kant takes this to be um, a refutation of the relational theory of space, uh, which Leibniz proposed. Um, so he he argues that there's um, something about space which which is not captured just by the relations of uh, entities to each other or the parts of entities to each other. Um, and so this means that there's a, a sort of intrinsic direction to space in the sense that you can, uh, a left hand and a right hand are distinct from each other. Um, and he, he then goes through um, uh, um, the sort of construction of 
um, uh, negative magnitudes in terms of uh, directions in space. So like you can have a, a ship um, where the current is pushing it uh, 10 kilometers an hour west and the wind is pushing it five kilometers an hour east, for example. And then you add up those two uh, forces or two um, component motions and you get a, a motion of five kilometers an hour to the west. Um, uh, and uh, so this type of construction uh, is then taken up again in his Metaphysical Foundations of Natural Science, uh, which is one is a, a sort of post-critical text. So it, it's after the first critique, whereas the negative magnitudes precedes the first critique. Um, and in the Metaphysical Foundations of Natural Science, he tries to give a construction of matter in terms of attractive and repulsive forces. So um, if we want to say that something occupies space, or this body occupies space, what we um, what we mean in part is determined is uh, is um, that the the object repels other objects, so it prevents other objects from occupying that space. Uh, it has this repulsive force, uh, and then there's also the attractive force, which Kant identifies with gravity. Um, though Schelling will sort of criticize that point. Um, so, Kant, so Schelling takes up the, this Kantian dynamical physics, um, and uh, he wants to. Um, so, he, yeah, he, the sort of uh, different strands that Schelling ties together are, are the Kantian dynamical physics, um, Fichte's um, dynamical conception of the eye as self-positing and positing the world outside itself, uh, and then the medical concept of excitability. And he he sort of uh, ties all these concepts together and produces this conception of uh, nature as a whole as self-positing. Uh, and then um, the, the product of this self-positing is further determined into the different uh, sort of quantitative ratios of the various uh, forces that um, uh, constitute that self-positing. And so uh, we can understand the different types of entities we find in nature in terms of the ratios or proportions of the different forces to each other. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read this part. The absolute is identity of subject and object. It is neither subject nor object, nor individuality, nor indistinct continuum. It is neither spirit nor nature, because it is the identity or indifference of the two opposites, like the one of Plato's Parmenides or the one of Plotinus. Uh, nevertheless, how is individualization possible? It is only possible if spirit and nature separate. And yet they only separate if one considers that nature and spirit are each subject and object. Neither of them are the synthesis of two terms initially existing separately, but identity of the one and the other. There is merely an excess of objectivity in nature and an excess of subjectivity in spirit. Each being can then be thought in itself. Intuition allows us to follow the transformations of the same in the other, just as Goethe follows the transformations of the leaf in all the organs of the plants. The being is independent of the spatial-temporal relations that connect phenomena. The science of Newton, which only determines beings through their mutual relations, is abandoned. Each being can, can be treated as an autonomous and free absolute, having nothing within itself but the law of its movement. Such is the meaning of the astronomy contained in the work entitled Bruno, or On the Natural and Divine Principle of Things, in which Schelling considers each celestial body as an autonomous and free ab absolute. Each being has a direct rapport with the absolute. The method of the classification of concepts cannot assist in the specific determinations of beings. Nevertheless, Schelling does not limit the application of his method to the grasping of individual beings. He wants to conserve the continuity of forms, also for the powers of nature and spirit. Thus, nature, under its real and objective aspect, is cohesion. Under its ideal aspect is light, and as identity, its gravity is suffused with light or organism. But the singularity of individual beings disappears in the dispersal of identity. Their distinction, their will, their morality cannot be conserved. 
Already in Philosophy and Religion, 1804, Schelling acknowledged that finite being, unable to arise from the absolute, which remains in itself, must posit itself through an entirely free act, analogous to that which Plotinus lent to the souls that want to live for themselves and to detach themselves from the world soul. Like Böhme and Eckhart, Schelling, wanting to make room for individual beings, is forced to resort to a mystical drama. In the beginning, this drama involves the existence of a non-individualized ground, a grunt, without lighter consciousness, empty and poor desire. But Schelling is then in fact forced to introduce an already individualized being. This is the spirit of God, moved by love, which links the understanding to desire, pregnant with all the forms of existence and becoming the creative will of nature. This is cosmogonic becoming. Man is found as a, at its culminating point. In the natural being, each being's own will remains united with the universal will. In man, this will wants to exist by itself and become its universe to itself. Man consequently closes himself off from universal love. Theogonic becoming, or the return to God, begins with the fall of man. It is only in God that the foundation is immediately connected with existence. Outside it, the foundation only reaches existence through the intermediary of nature and history. There is consequently a sin in the individuality that wants to be complete and absolute. Only man realizes complete individuality. He realizes it in sin. This moment of complete individuality is therefore integrated into the totality of the drama. Even in God, becoming is a victory, overcoming the blind and destructive forces for which it serves as a base. Affirmation only establishes itself over negation by rejecting into an eternal past the obscure and chaotic forms that attempted to be. Nothing is as dark and surrounded by dangers as a life that begins, but primordial capacities only renounce themselves by becoming the organ of a superior will. Thus, for Schelling, there is a sort of conservation of forces, of potentials anterior to the whole drama with which an individuation begins. It is in this sense that it is necessary to accept the, con the concept of superdivinity, the basis of which is nature, constituted by the three capacities. Becoming is first and foremost that of God himself. In order for him to be the primordial seed, which is his first capacity, he must become non-being. In opposition to this primordial seed, God is the being who is. This is his second capacity. The alternating and oscillating opposition between these two capacities, which want to be and which repress the other two in turn, will only cease through the common will of renunciation in favor of a will which is not that of any form of being because it is above all difference, the Übergottheit, absolute freedom, superdivinity. In the wake of a theurgy, Schelling is led to present nature as the product of wrath or God's negative capacity. The world of spirits is the product of love or God's affirmative capacity. Finally, love unites with wrath to create the wisdom of the world's soul. Thus, a certain gap appears to remain between a philosophy that rationally constructs the universal on the one hand and a philosophy that grasps the effect of the existing individual on the other. The existent is conceived as radically free and contingent relative to essence and the possible. The, quote, positive philosophy, that, unquote, that starts with the pure fact of absolute freedom, the principle of existence for oneself and for others, is opposed to the, quote, purely rational philosophy, unquote, that constructs the possible. The individual, therefore, remains an irreducible given that serves as the principle for our philosophy. Right. Um, so this... Uh, section that we just read um, has to do primarily with Schelling's later philosophy. So um, uh, Schelling is interesting in that he sort of continually reinvents his philosophical thought. He doesn't just sort of um, develop a philosophical system and then present that same system in different texts. He, he's sort of continually recreating or, or reinventing his own philosophical system. Um, and in some of his later texts, um, like the ones that um, Simon Don is talking about here, he uses um, a sort of theosophical language or, or quasi-mythological language. Um, so he's, he's sort of depicting 
the inner life of God in terms of um, these different principles that operate and interact with each other. Um, so this this uh, one of the sort of key texts is the um, the uh, um, essence of human freedom uh, text, uh, which is um, probably Schelling's most famous text uh, from 1809. Um, uh, so in this text, he um, he uh, wants to look at the problem of evil essentially. So this is a, a traditional philosophical problem having to do with the relationship between God and evil. Uh, so if the world is ruled by uh, a just and all-powerful God, how is it the case, or why is it the case that there is evil in the world? Uh, you know, it, it would seem that uh, a just and all-powerful God would be able and uh, and willing to eliminate evil from the world. Um, and so Schelling goes through a few of the different um, sort of traditional answers or answers that have been given for the to this problem of evil, and uh, he he shows how they're um, inadequate in various ways. Um, his own answer is uh, rather obscure, but uh, as, as Simon Don points out here, it has to do with his conception of the individual. So the um, the capacity for evil or the existence of evil in the world um, has to do with the way that uh, um, individual beings are distinct from God. Uh, so if we... Um, if we consider uh, individual beings to be in God in some sense, and he says this is a, a sort of a point of Christian doctrine that uh, God is present everywhere, so um, everything is in God in some sense, um, then the question becomes, what is it um, that constitutes the independence of those beings from God? So what is it that makes me a distinct entity from God? Uh, and for Schelling, the answer is freedom. Um, and freedom has to mean the capacity both to will the good, but also to will evil. Um, so it's only because I uh, have the capacity to will evil that I am a, an entity distinct from God, uh, a distinct being. Uh, and so um, the, the problem of evil has to do with individuation as well as uh, the sort of moral philosophy. So it's... It, um, it has to do with what it what it is to be an independent being, to be an individual, uh, and this is closely tied up with the capacity for evil. Uh, and then uh, Simon Don here also um, sort of alludes to some of the other late Schelling texts. Um, so there's a, a series of versions of a text that Schelling worked on called Ages of the Worlds uh, that he never published in his lifetime. Uh, there, there are, I think, three distinct versions of it um, that he prepared, uh, but never published. Um, and uh, yeah, so in this text, um, we have this concept of the Übergottheit, the um, uh, over-divinity or super-divinity. So um, there's uh, in um, in the thought of, God, or in uh, God as a, a principle or as the, the principle de defining the creation of the world, there is something that is above God, um, something uh, higher than God. Um, and uh, so that this is what Yuba Gottheit means. Uh, and then he also, Simon Dong here also um, uh, refers to um, Schelling's notion of a positive philosophy. So this is even uh, later than that. So when, when Schelling is teaching at um, the University of Berlin, he uh, 
uh, teaches courses on what he calls positive philosophy. So he he argues that um, uh, a purely rational philosophy is incapable of um, um, sort of grasping the singularity of exist of existence. So um, you can you can have a purely rational philosophy of uh, only of what's possible. Uh, so a rational philosophy or a purely rational philosophy can only um, explain possibility. You can say that you know this sort of arrangement of the world is possible, but it can't um, grasp the actuality of or the the sort of singular existence of the uh, of an entity. Uh, and so he Schelling argues that we need, uh, in addition to rational philosophy, we need what he calls positive philosophy. So this would be a philosophy that doesn't um, sort of um, attempt to grasp a being in terms of its possibility, but that uh, uh, starts from what he calls the unprethinkable, um, um, that uh, this is sort of the being of an entity that precedes any attempt to think it. Um, and uh, and so uh, this is the opposition between positive philosophy and rational philosophy that, that Schelling sets out in his later lecture courses. Uh, and Simondon takes it that um, this opposition between positive philosophy and rational philosophy indicates a kind of um, disjunction or gap between um, the thought of the universal and the thought of the individual. Um, and, and so the individual is is still for Schelling um, sort of something that resists rationalization or that resists incorporation into the rational world picture. Um, and uh, and so Simondon will want to overcome that uh, sort of opposition or that irrationality of the individual and develop uh, a rational conception of the individual or a thought of the individual that doesn't have this kind of gap between the individual and the rational world order. Okay, uh, so if there are no um, comments or questions about, uh, about that section, uh, let's go on to the next one, which I think should be the last section. Uh, so if... Um, if um, someone else would like to read, we, you can read to the end of this text. So I, 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 can, I can read the episode? Because I didn't do that part, right? Uh, so we're at the, the section heading Novalis, Hildelin, and Novalis, Hildelin, that part? Oh, sorry. <laughs> they kind of, I get also, uh, sorry. Could you, could you uh, repeat which part exactly? Yeah, so we're on, uh, let me just get the page number. Yeah, 648 of the yep. PDF, and we're at the heading Novalis, Hüderin, Henrik Steffens. Oh my gosh. I, I just like uh, finished like, uh, the Angus, finished the matter is nothing but spirit. Uh, after that, you read, right? Yes. Uh, so I read about a page and a half after that point. Yeah. Nevertheless, the shilling, this part, right? Nevertheless, the shilling does not remit the application, his method, the part. Uh, no, after that, um, um, yeah, about a page after that, there's a, a section heading. Oh my gosh. Sorry. Better <laughs> just give up. Sorry. Can't. 248. 248. Uh, 648. Yeah. Uh, 648. And then, and then, I can't, why? I can't see like a novelist. Uh, are you on the physical book, the paper copy or the PDF? The paper copy. Uh, yeah, so the page numbers are slightly different in the the paper book compared to the PDF. Uh, I'm not sure what the exact page number is. Uh, try going like two pages further. Yeah, tonight quite, quite, sorry, like, wow. Uh, so that's okay. I can, I can read this section then um, if you, if you can find it and then uh, you can try to find it as I'm, uh, as I'm reading. 
Okay, thank you. Sorry. Ah, ah, gotcha, gotcha. This part, right? Furthermore, the opposition between two philosophies. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, thanks. Ah, sorry. Furthermore, furthermore, the opposition between the philosophies. I think. Ah, sorry. Ah, the opposition. Ah, sorry. Furthermore, the opposition between two philosophies is the essence of romanticism, and the paradox of individuality is still expressed in this opposition. For the individual wants to be universalized, and is opposed by its equality to this universalization. The individual must be, at the same time, one of the terms of the opposition and subject of the opposition. The individual must be included in the order of simultaneity. And the successive, but it can only be included therein if it understands this order, involves this order, and in some sense is the engine of this order. Novalis said, "The proper essence of romanticism is to make absolute, to universalize, and to clarify, uh, clarify the individual moment or the individual situation." End of quotes. This is why meditations are always necessary to try to account for this paradox, the myth. The narrative, the sign elevated to the status of symbol, are attempts to present a topology of being and a systematic of time in which a place or a moment are both a place among places, a moment among uh, among moments, and an exceptional place, a center of the value-laden world, an exceptional instance, an absolute origin, an absolute end, polarizing the order of time. The romanticists search for places and times of exception. Which are at once ends and limits, being sense origins, elements, and the source that produces around in a field which is not、uh, the source but comes from it and unifies beings. The individual turns his instant into a date.、Uh, for example, the end and an origin,、uh, i.e.,、uh, an end and origin, and not just a moment. The instant possesses internal density in a Consistency that make an eternity of it. For this instant is the active source of the duration of the after, and it absorbs the duration of the before. All duration passes through it, and the instant polarizes this duration, just as the pole of the magnet, in which all the lines of forces and the magnetic field enter to come back through the opposite pole. The magnet concentrates them and produces them. It is the reason and the Cause of their convergence and their divergence. It is a field, but it is the field's creator. It arranges the field by which it is suffused, and this field opens out to the infinite and returns from the infinite to converge in this、uh, magnetized metal. The magnet is subject and element is、uh, at the same time. The field that it creates is within it and outside it, within its circularity and throughout its polarity. Polarity, in fact, allows a being to differ from itself, which is the very essence of the individual. The non-individualized being does not have the capacity to differ from itself. The romantic place also has this capacity, differing from itself, which is traded it in space and traded space with respect to it, as if the place were the source of space. The place is a sanctuary, cradle and tomb, endowed with the proper force that is not limited inside it. But radi-、uh, radiates beyond, like a place of a pilgrimage that draws the map of the roads and punctuates the world of centuries. Secondary to the pilgrims' stops, these stops are themselves like places of pilgrimage, 
the participant in the movement toward the absolute place. The place is like the orient that gives the direction to the world, the polarity to everything, everything, from the hillsides to the tree trunks. It does not have the same color on the oriented side. Space is polarized by place. Place is within itself and outside itself. It is that which is and also that which polarizes. The very top individual is also that which is and that which polarizes. It's place and moment. We'll continue or stop here? Uh, you can continue. Thanks. Huala, uh, in fact, uh, intended poetry for such a discovery. As far as it could grasp, what philosophy can grasp only by becoming contradictory respect with respect to itself. Quotes. In the end, what is incompatible, philosophically speaking, is a united in the mysterious source of poetry. Philosophy does not come from the pure understanding, which is more than the limited knowledge of the given. It does not come from simple reason, for it is more than the demand for an endless progress. It's in union and distinction, but clarified the divine phrase, and then it no longer demands it blindly, knows what it demands and why. End of quote. Thus, philosophies of uh, Heraclitian knowledge of the unity of contradictory things. The organ of this knowledge is the spirit, which connects isolated things. Quotes, or friends, or friend, end of quote, says uh, Hyperion, quote, in the end, in the spirit, reconciles us with all things, end of quote. Poetry, the harmony of speech that reunites what nature had joined and what the what understanding had separated. Nature is, quote, rude nature, which loves a region and which is linked to enthusiasm, end of quote. Quote, we separate ourselves only to be more united to be in a more divine peace with all things and with ourselves, end of quotes. This peace is one that is different from itself. It is life and being, quotes. To be, to live, that is enough. There is honor of the gods. And, and therefore, all things that but have life are equal in the divine world. And it is in there no masters or servants. Natures live together like lovers. They hold all in common, spirit, joy, and eternal youth. End of quotes. This thought makes it such that man, man must be first a, a quotes, skillful man before being child. End of quotes. For he must already uh, be intelligent before having his sensibilities ripen. This doctrine, this research, is reminiscent of Plato's quotes along the tour, end of course, through which the being fulfills itself. Stephen's uh, mineralogist and geologist shows the evolution to be tending towards individuality and to be fully realized in man. So, sorry for my confusion at first, sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, I'm glad we found the right place. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this um, this bit is uh, um, yeah on the romantic poets who were associated with German idealism, so with, with Fichte and Schelling. Um, so Novalis... Um, uh, if I remember correctly, he um, actually worked in a mine at one point. I think his father owned a mine, um, and he. But then he was also a poet and a philosopher, um, and he he wrote um, you know a series of notes on Fichte, um, and um, the one um, of the characteristics of Romanticism as a as a, a poetic 
uh, movement in, in Germany in uh, the 1790s uh, and the early 1800s uh, is this sort of tension between the individual and the universal. Uh, uh, and this sort of uh, mirrors or re reproduces the tension that we talked about with Fichte between the I as absolute or the I as self-positing on the one hand, and then the I as uh, posited in, in opposition to the world. Um, so one of the sort of key um, principles of Romanticism is this kind of tension between the individual and the absolute. So um, the poets um, try to grasp the, the absolute as it appears in an individual moment or individual place or, or whatever. Um, and there's a kind of um, interaction between the, the individuality of this uh, particular moment or place and the uh, absolute uh, or universal value of this um, of this moment or place, um, and then there's also uh, so this is that's sort of um, Novalis's general uh, orientation or the sort of romantic uh, orientation in general. Uh, but Hildelin is a bit different because for him, um, um, so Hildelin is definitely a romantic. Uh, he's definitely part of this romantic movement, um, but he also has um, somewhat different uh, relationship with uh, history or with time. Uh, so he, for Hildelin, there's this conception of uh, ancient Greece and the ancient Greek world as a, a time in which um, the divine was uh, present to human beings, whereas the modern world is is characterized by the absence of the divine. So um, um, you know, ancient Greek um, people could just go to a temple and see Zeus or Apollo or, or whoever um, in in a statue. Uh, the the gods were sort of present, um, but for us as moderns, the the gods are are um, are absent, and um, so this modern condition of um, the absence of of the gods is. Uh, is uh, one of the key ideas in, in Hödelin's uh, poetry. Um, and um, Hödelin is also important for um, uh, Heidegger later on. Uh, Heidegger takes Hödelin to be one of the sort of key moments in uh, the, the history of being. Uh, and uh, several of Heidegger's uh, texts and lecture courses are devoted to interpreting Hödelin poems um, uh, and so he takes it that Hudelin is um, sort of um, uh, holding on to the the memory of of being um, the the recollection of uh, of being uh, that is uh, sort of being lost in the uh, transformation of the surrounding world. Um, uh, so you know that Heidegger's interpretation of Hudelin is um, something that is uh, debatable um, that, you know, other people have contested, uh, but um, yeah, it, it, whichever, however we want to take Heidegger's interpretation of Hildelin, um, definitely Hildelin is a poet who has a lot of uh, philosophical importance as well. Uh, and then there's also this last line here, which is um, kind of interesting because it's, it doesn't appear in the French. Uh, so the, the last line on page 650 of the PDF uh, about Stefan's uh, doesn't appear in the French text. Um, so there is an end note in the English text that I haven't read, so I'm not sure. It probably says where that 
line comes from. But um, yeah, Steffens was a, a geologist who was associated with Schelling, who um, who um, yeah sort of applied Schelling's ideas to the study of mineralogy um, and uh, the classification of, of minerals in terms of um, you know how they they're produced by the interaction of different forces uh, and. Schelling's work actually was was quite influential in early 19th century German science uh, and medicine. There were a lot of um, uh, there were other scientists like uh, Lorenz Oken, um, who uh, actually founded the uh, German Academy of Science uh, or scientists and and doctors, um, which still exists today. Uh, so Oken was uh, um, influenced by Schelling and and. Uh, sort of developed some of Schelling's ideas in uh, in biology, um, uh, yeah, and even uh, so. Then and then, so in the early nineteenth century, the, this uh, natural philosophy or, or nature philosophy was um, um, quite uh, popular and influential. And then there was a reaction um, in sort of the mid nineteenth century where uh, a lot of scientists rejected this idea of uh, or this approach to uh, natural science. Uh, but there are still some kind of uh, hidden influences of the of natural philosophy on later science, especially the idea of the uh, unity of forces. This was one of the key concepts that Schelling developed in his um, uh, uh, nature philosophical writings. And uh, this idea of the unity of forces had a direct influence on the development of uh, the theory of electromagnetism, uh, which uh, sort of united the theory of electricity and of magnetism. Uh, and uh, um, so Hans Oersted uh, was uh, um, one of the people who started to develop this theory of electromagnetism, and he was directly influenced by Schelling's work on the unity of forces. So it's a, a kind of interesting um, hidden current in 19th century physics uh, and uh, natural science in general that is that derived from nature philosophy about the, the relation between place and the space and then uh, and the, the part like uh, what Novel says like the proper essence of romanticism is to make it absolutely universalized to classify individual moments and or the individual situations for me I uh, it's like a comparison between like um, individuality and universality and then that has to do with like the comparison between uh, the uh, rela- uh, relation of, between like the space and the place. So as a kind of a place is like uh, um, is like uh, the uh, equivalent to, to the individuality, and then space more like a universal uh, universality, like equivalent to universality. Likewise. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so there's this comparison that Simon Don points to with the magnet, um, and uh, so the magnet is a uh, um, there are sort of a few properties of the magnet that are um, relevant here. So the magnet has a polarity. So it has a, a differentiation within itself between the North and the South Pole. And uh, this is, so magnetism was something that Schelling was very interested in uh, and that uh, later um, nature philosophy um, was also sort of uh, interested in as well. And, and uh, so one of the sort of properties of a magnet that is um, Sort of puzzling, but but um, that Schelling points to is that if you take a magnet um, that has a north and a south pole, and then you cut the magnet in half, then the midpoint of the magnet um, 
which previously was not polarized, now becomes polarized. So you have two pieces of magnet, and then each of those magnets itself has a north pole and a south pole. Uh, so the, the midpoint of the original magnet is now split into uh, a north pole and a south pole. Um, yeah, so um, Cyborg had just posted a, a, an image of a, a magnet with its lines of force. Uh, and so that's the other sort of, or one of the other key properties of a magnet is that it, it produces this field that surrounds it. Um, and uh, this, and, and so this field is uh, on the one hand produced by the magnet, but then on the other hand also um, acts on the magnet. So if you have like multiple magnets in a, in a room or something, each of the magnets produces a magnetic field and um, each of those fields acts on the other magnets and, and on itself. Uh, in this sort of uh, reciprocal causation loop. Um, so the, 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 the magnet produces a field and it also is affected by the field that it itself produces. And, and so there's a sort of infinite um, recursive loop of, mag of magnetism. Um, and uh, so uh, Simon Don here uh, takes this sort of uh, uh, analogy of the magnet to the uh, the relationship between a place and space in general. So a particular place um, has uh, this sort of uh, universal value in the sense that it um, sort of organizes space around itself. Um, so the the uh, the place is one um, sort of moment, but it has this sort of internal differentiation uh, that allows it to uh, relate to space as a whole and organize space around itself. Uh, and then individual places have these sort of uh, lines of force connecting them to each other. Uh, and then the whole sort of network of places is both is produces space around itself or organizes space around itself, but then also at the same time is is affected by that network of by that uh, uh, field or, or or space as a whole. Um, so uh, yes, yeah, so the you're right that the uh, relationship between place and space is um, sort of analogous to the relationship between the, the individual and the universal. Uh, and then each of these is, is sort of understood in, in terms of this magnetic uh, field that is both the product of and the uh, and has a causal influence on the magnet. Uh, that's a fantastic idea like uh, to show how um how the the power of force is uh, generated. I mean, the magnetic ideas is fantastic, but at the same time, what I'm wondering is like, then where does that magnetic power come from? Uh, what I mean is that that explains the how like the place is like uh, has like uh, it's a function internal or externally like a function uh, both ways. But the at the same time, like a magnetic power is like innate, like that's a kind of inherited power. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, uh, so sorry. I just just wondering, like, where does it come from? Something like that. Yeah. Um, so in in Schelling in um, Naturphilosophie, uh, magnetism is the result of um, uh, a particular configuration of the fundamental forces of nature. So for Schelling. Um, the construction of matter is determined by a repulsive and an, an, an attractive force, and then the uh, unification of those two forces. So there's these three sort of fundamental principles that um, that underlie the construction of matter. And um, magnetism is the sort of configuration of those forces in terms of one dimension, in terms of a line. 
Um, uh, and, and so this is a sort of accounts for the polarization or the polarity of a magnet. So a magnet is sort of ideally constructed in terms of a line that has a north end and a south end. Um, so uh, in this um, conception, the magnetic force doesn't really come from anywhere. It's just one sort of configuration of the basic fundamental forces of the universe, of, of nature. Um, uh, but then when we look at the, the example of, of the place and space uh, and their relation to each other, um, this would be a much more complicated configuration of the fundamental forces of nature uh, in such a way that um, particular places and the space in which they find themselves would be uh, sort of in interaction with each other. Um, and uh, we can probably connect this to... Um, uh, Simon Dahl's other main text, the uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects, where um, he talks about um, the the sort of so in the third part of that book, uh, which we talked about a little bit last week, um, he he develops this account of uh, this genetic account of human modes of existence, um, and the the most fundamental or the first uh, mode of human existence is the magical mode of existence, and this mode of existence is precisely um, uh, oriented towards uh, particular places or particular moments in time. So um, a magical mode of existence is always in relationship to um, something like, you know, the full moon or uh, a particular site on a mountaintop that has magical powers or something like that. Uh, and each of these locations in space and time or, or these, these places and moments um, are sort of related to each other in a kind of network um, so one place communicates in with the other. Uh, and then uh, this sort of network of places or a network of moments um, uh, sort of feedback feeds back onto the individual places. So each of these moments or each of these places is uh, organized around each of the others. Uh, so this uh, this is sort of the conception of um, um, the of space and place. Uh, in terms of this reciprocal feedback, so the the sort of short answer is that the the magnetic field or or the um, the analogous field that is space doesn't come from anywhere. It's it's a sort of uh, one organization of the fundamental forces that make up the natural world. Yeah, I, I'm I'm ignorant of Heidegger, but uh, anyway, like in terms of uh, accumulates of uh, moments, uh, leads to the uh, particular image of a space or kind of a being, I mean, the identity of being. Uh, I guess, like, uh, your explanation, in a way, like, uh, uh, how do you say, like, the, it implicates, like, some connection, the, this part to the Heidegger's philosophy, like... Hmm, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, so, for Heidegger, there's, there's a similar kind of conception of uh, um, the sort of fundamental orientation towards space. Uh, so he criticizes the sort of Cartesian notion of space as being um, a kind of bare extension, um, you know, just made up of geometrical properties of figures. Uh, so he thinks, so for Heidegger, the, the more fundamental notion of space is one understood in terms of distancing of uh, uh, the way that human beings or Dasein um, uh, sort of uh, orient themselves toward the um, uh, other entities that they find um, in space. Uh, so something is distant from me insofar as it takes me time and 
uh, effort and so on to uh, to sort of grasp that object or to um, bring myself into contact with that entity. Uh, so, um, you know, the hammer that I have right next to me that I can just pick up and use and, and you know, do whatever I want with is close to me. Uh, and then um, some other, uh, I don't know, uh, a house that's um, in a different city is distant from me because it's uh, it has to be, it requires time and effort and probably money and and so on for me to actually get to that house. Um, but for Heidegger, this this um, structure of space in terms of distancing and of uh, um, integration into a, a sort of practical project of Dasein is more fundamental than uh, space as a, a geometrical extension. And for Heidegger as well, th this uh, space in terms of distancing is sort of structured in terms of a network. So each, um, each uh, entity is related to other entities in terms of how they are integrated into various practical projects, um, and and so they they have relationships of distancing to each other in that sense. Um, uh, so yeah, I think there are some similarities to this conception of space and place that we find in Simon Don here. Um, but um, yeah, it would be interesting to try to compare and see to what extent they uh, they match each other and what the differences are. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, so um, if there are no other comments or questions or, or anything, um, I think we can stop here for today because we just finished this text. Um, so uh, for next time, we, we had discussed, uh, so there are sort of two options. We can either continue with the rest of the uh, texts that are in this volume, uh, in volume two of individuation. Um, so there's a couple more texts. There's... Um, Analysis of the Criteria of Individuality, uh, which I think is about 10 pages. Uh, oh, sorry, there's three texts. Analysis of the Criteria of Individuality, there's Allegmatics, and then there's Form, Information, and Potentials, which is one we read uh, probably a year ago now or you know before we started Individuation. Um, but it also appears in this book, uh, so we can read that again. Uh, so we have those texts that are uh, in this volume. Uh, that's one option, we can read those texts. Um, but we'd also discussed um, potentially looking at um, uh, a presentation that I did um, a couple months ago now um, on uh, Hegel and category theory. Um, I think I mentioned this last week in our discussion. Uh, so I had done a presentation at a conference about um, uh, Hegel and category theory uh, and some sort of interesting connections between the two. Um, and uh, someone suggested that I should, uh, uh, you know, present that that talk here in, in one of our sessions. So we could do that next week if, if people are interested, or we can just continue with Simon Dome. Both sound in, uh, intriguing, and, and then, but the, we can do uh, with your presentation paper first, and then you can continue with this book, like we can uh, finish this book uh, totally. So after your presentation, we can uh, do the the reading like uh, the uh, the rest part, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that would that would work. Um, um, I do need to check that I can share my screen on here because uh, uh, okay, yeah, see you sixty one. Um, yeah, let's actually let's stop the recording um, and then we can discuss after that. Um, let me just stop the recording.